turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to uh, we're going to continue with the Jerusalem Council tonight. So if you want to turn with me to Acts 15. We're going to be picking up in verse 13. So Acts 15, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this, I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write them, write them, we should write to them, to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to those men from among them, to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are in the Gentiles, or who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, Sicily, and greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettled your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of, of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than those requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. For when they had sent off, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and gathered the congregation together. They delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Good evening. So we will be finishing our look at the Jerusalem Council 
this uh, afternoon, this evening. So if you have your Bibles and you're still in Acts 15, that's pretty much where we'll be. We'll go a couple different places. But we're going to continue on. So last week, we looked at um, verses 1 through 12. We sort of set up our time in the rest of this chapter here. But last time we talked about the issue that was raised. right? So we talked about there was an occasion where some came from Jerusalem and came to deliver uh, a message. The message that they brought came from uh, themselves. Even in the passage we just read, it was made clear that they weren't sent by the apostles. But they started to teach that you had to be circumcised in order for, uh, if you were Gentile, you had to be circumcised in order for you to be saved. And so we brought up the fact that it really was when they started to talk about adding to the requirements of fellowship and salvation, that's where we started to have a problem. That's where we uh, saw that there was a need for there to be a, uh, a solid word concerning this. Uh, I was going to go back and count. I just didn't take time how many times I said circumcision last week. Um, but it was a lot. And um, it would have been very unsettling. So just as we kind of move into this next part, we see their response. It would be very unsettling for you to be living out the gospel, for you to be sharing the gospel with others, for churches to be planted, for churches to be put together, and then to have someone come to say, actually, you're, you don't understand the requirements. You're doing it wrong. So you can understand why this would be very unsettling, right? You can understand if someone came to you and said, actually, you are misunderstanding your faith. You're misunderstanding what you are supposed to do to please God. It's a pretty disturbing thing to have someone come and to tell you. This would have been a, a big additional thing to add. It wasn't just circumcision. That would have been big enough for, uh, for them to have to lay as a burden upon all these different churches. Because as we were reading before, Antioch was going about and they were, you were seeing the Lord bless the, the ministry there and there were a lot of people who were turning to the Lord. But it was the addition of the and follow the law of Moses, the tradition of Moses, in order for you to even be able to come before the Lord, for you to be able to partake in grace. That is a really scary thing. It's a scary thing to think about. And as we go through this, I'm sure that you can think through some of the times where there might be other teachings that have popped up to say you have to do a certain additional thing in order for you to be able to uh, be received by the Lord. And while we might not be addressing those things, I do hope that we can see how this issue is addressed and be able to maybe have an answer for some of those other teachings, ones that you can fill in the blank for. So as we, as we pick this up, the, the answer was the leaders of the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to ask of the apostles and to ask of the elders there. Which, um, 
which I think was not, not just a, a good move, I think it was a very wise move. They could make decisions for themselves, but they wanted to make sure that the decisions they were making were proper, they were true. But I'm sure you could also imagine if it was a predominantly Gentile church, they may have had a bias. Well, I don't really want to do that, but they were willing to submit to the apostles and to the elders to see what was really true. But it troubled them that there was this type of remark that was coming from, or a teaching that was coming out from, from Jerusalem from these men. So, they go down to Jerusalem and they meet with the apostles and the elders. And so that's where we, we pick up. So, Last week, we saw that there were two people that gave testimony. And this is actually, it's interesting, because we're going to actually find throughout this Jerusalem Council that they actually adhere to a lot of principles that are already laid down by the law, which is very interesting. Um, But one of the things is they don't move through on a matter. They don't um, consider a matter unless there are two or three witnesses. And here you have two witnesses that do speak. And they speak from experience and what the Lord has, has shown them. Pretty well established uh, testimony. And all of it is actually what we've read in the previous chapters in Acts. So first Peter speaks. And he speaks to his uh, interactions with the Gentiles. How he went to Cornelius' house. and How the Gentiles there who already were worshiping Yahweh. They were already worshiping the Lord. How the Holy Spirit came. And how there was pretty much no difference between what happened at Pentecost and what happened there in Cornelius' house. The same type of blessing took place. And then Paul, he also gives account. And we talked about last week how he, on the way down, they visited churches and they were giving this testimony of what the Lord was doing in these Gentile churches. And so Paul gives that same testimony there with the elders, the apostles. And so, picking up in verse 13, after they finished speaking, it's Peter, Paul, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Okay, we'll pause there for a second. Uh, We didn't get very far. Uh, So what we see here is you have the apostles and you have the elders, and they're there speaking. It does seem to be a public affair because a little bit later on, just a few verses from here, it says that they all together agree. It says the, the apostles, the elders, and the church. So the rest of them also agree. So it seems to be something that is done more publicly, not not just like a boardroom. I don't know if they had boardrooms like that, but you know what I mean. Probably not. Um, it wasn't just a, a room with big chairs and a long table where they make decisions, you know. Uh, but it was something more like that discussion. And, it, and I think it is important to, uh, to point out that it talks about there already have been, there's already been debate. There's already been discussion. These things have already been talked about and then you got the testimony of Peter and Paul. And so everyone has already had a chance to speak. It even mentions that those who were of the circumcision party got to speak. So they all have already had this debate. They've already conversed. And I think what you see with 
James here is a summing up of some of those things. James puts it together. Now, I want to point out here that it's James. There, there are many who would say because of this passage and this interaction that they have that James most likely held this position of being the pastor in the Jerusalem church of sorts. He somehow had this leadership role where he was able to stand up and, as we'll see, summarize the argument, put together an exegetical comment that supported uh, the comments that he was making, and then that would go before everyone to then be accepted. Right? So that's what you have here. You have that form. You have that function. But, uh, and we'll get into it here in just a, a little bit into more detail. But here we have James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. So Simeon here, this is Peter. I mean, how many names can a guy have? Apparently three or four variations of such. But uh, So his name's Simon, calls him Peter. But he does lean on that. He leans on the fact that Peter has already had an interaction with the Gentiles. He's already had this experience. And we continue in verse 14 to take him uh, to take from them a people for his name, among who? That we're talking about the Gentiles. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And here's where James is going to share some, uh, something from the scriptures. Now, this is probably not where we would go to prove a point. He goes to the book of Amos. Um, go ahead and turn to the book of Amos. We're not going to do a full exegesis of Amos. He was a prophet. I think he was an almond farmer, actually. Um, just side note. Um, but Amos is speaking. And as we're turning to Amos, I just want to kind of point this thing out. There are a lot of times where we will talk about scripture and we will talk about the use of scripture and the use of God's word, but I just want to remind everyone that at this point, when Paul, when Peter, when the apostles, when anyone else references the scriptures, they are talking about the Old Testament. They don't really have the rest. They may have maybe some of the gospels, they may have some pieces of things that they may have used, but they don't have the whole Bible as we have it here, when they're talking about the scriptures, it's generally regarded to be the Old Testament. And so when they would go to the scriptures for things, when they would go to see what God's word said about something, they are talking about the Old Testament. And as we'll see here in just a second, it's maybe even a little bit more complex than that. Uh, so you being an Amos... We're going to look at Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. So that's where James quotes from. Now, while you're there looking at Amos 9, I'm going to read from Acts 15, okay? So that, those are the verses that he's going to quote. So look at verse, uh, verse 11. 
I'm gonna read from verse 16. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. I'm sorry, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Okay. Did you notice some differences between the two passages? Yes, no? Um, good job. There are differences between these two passages. So you passed that first test. Congratulations. Uh, a little principle to maybe hang on to when a lot of the New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament. They're not quoting the Hebrew or the Masoretic text. They're quoting the Septuagint. How many of you already knew that? Ah, oh, you're smart eggs. Good job. I know, I know most of you just didn't put your hands up because you didn't want to, you know, be puffed up. So that's good. But the read from the Septuagint. Anyone know what the Septuagint is? You can shout it out for extra points. I hear mumblings. I'm going to go ahead and say, oh, Rich, thank you. Greek translation of the Old Testament. So sometime a few centuries earlier, they had actually had a Greek translation made. And part of that was the language of the day had transitioned. After a good old Alexander had made his way through and traveled about the world, Greek was the main language of the world at that point. So here's what's interesting. When you make a translation of anything, I know we'd like to say, we want it to be word for word. Well, if we really had a word for word translation, it would be very, very difficult to read. Most of the sentence structure would be incorrect. Certain verbiage wouldn't match up. It would be very weird to read. And so every translation from one language to another, there is at the very least some, a small bit, of interpretation that has to happen between languages. And I would say it's actually to the strength of our understanding of the Old Testament that took place because we still have the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, and that was actually what we have is the Masoretic text was restructured later on and the vowels were all added and it was changed a few centuries even after the New Testament was written. But it's based on those same Hebrew writings. So we have in the Septuagint, I know, I'll get to the point. Uh, what we have in the Septuagint is an interpretation from scholars of the day to pull together an appropriate understanding of what the Hebrew text says. So there are certain words where a decision has to be made because the nuance of the words in Greek are slightly different. And so some of those changes help us to understand what was in the mind, how they understood the Old Testament to be stating, to be actually be teaching. It wasn't just a word for word translation. In all instances, they had to make some of those choices. This happens to be a passage where you have a couple of those words that give us a little bit of an insight into what might be going on. Now what's also interesting is James then, if you were to line this up with the Septuagint, he doesn't even quote the Septuagint properly he makes a couple of changes here to highlight how their understanding of that text was at work 
And so going to Amos, now I'm looking at verse 11 here. In that day I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its branches, raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the old, uh, days of old. Okay, so just reading that in Amos, what does it sound like we're talking about? It says here, the booth of David. What is that? What is, the, what is a booth? If you went to a restaurant, you'd have a booth. That's not what we're talking about, probably. Uh, if you went to a convention and you were going to present something in this convention hall, you'd probably have to rent out a, a booth, but that's not what we're talking about. What are we talking about here when it says a booth? Some of you who may have different translations of the Old Testament looking at the feasts may remember that one of the feasts is called the Feast of Booths. So what is a booth? If you used Old King Jimmy, it would say Feast of Tabernacles. Oh, the tabernacle. So a booth, we're talking about a booth in this Hebrew word here. What, what, what might be, we be talking about here? Tents, okay, so a tent. How many of you have tent in one of your translations, either here or in Acts? Yeah, they, do, they do exist, um, where it says tent. Now, if you were to just say, oh, we want to be totally literal about that, then if you said a tent, a tent of David, what would the tent of David be? Is it possibly his actual tent, like as he's traveling, his tent? Could it be that? Could someone have held on to David's tent and said, in lighter days, someone's going to repair this? Actually, Paul could have repaired it. He's a tent maker. So, I mean, is that what we're talking about? Is it a tent? So there's a lot of people who will go to that passage and see booths, see tabernacles, put these things together and say, oh, we must be talking about the tabernacle. We must be talking about the rebuilding of the temple. We must be talking about, oh, now, now we're talking about end times. Now we're talking about something. And then we start going off this thing. I don't think that's at all what James is talking about. Because James doesn't use that word. He uses a different word. And the word that he uses gives this idea of a, more of the idea of the house of David. Which makes sense. Because how James is going to use this has more to do with the reestablishment of the line of David and of the house of David that concept, that idea. And so in speaking that way, we'll finish finish this here. Verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of what? What do you have in your translation there? Edom. Does anyone have anything else other than Edom in Amos? So we have the word here for Edom. that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Going back to Acts. Verse 17, the remnant of Edom? What does it say? The remnant of, my translation says, mankind. So what in the world is James doing here? I think what James is doing here is he is directly answering the actual problem that arose. 
he's using Amos to answer this. So what he's saying here, verse 16, after this, obviously this is a quote from Amos, and Amos is speaking what Yahweh says. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. What we're getting at here is we're getting to the line of David, the house of David. So what is James referencing here? Why is he quoting this? Why is he saying in, that the Lord says that he will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen? See, when Amos was written, the, king, the kingdom was not what it once was. The house of David, there was a divide, there was a a split, the nation had been split, the, the kingdom was not as it was, and this is a promise that one day it would be restored. What he has in mind here in the rebuilding of the tent of David, the house of David, believe it or not, is the resurrection of Jesus. So think on this, think about Jesus, think about Jesus as the offspring of David. Do you remember some times where he had been called the son of David? What's a good example of a time where he is called the son of David? Does someone say it? The triumphal entry as he's walking, as he's, well he wasn't walking, actually the, the donkey was walking. He was uh, seated and people were crying out Son of David, son of David, which he was in his lineage, which was also a kingly title in Israel and a messianic title in Israel. They were crying out that he is the restoration of David, restoration of the house of David, which is pretty awesome. But as far as a dynastic king, if you have a king and the king dies, who then should become the king after the king dies? The son. Did Jesus have any sons? No. Whoops. How is this a restoration of the house of David? I think if we understand what the church is, we understand what the house of David is supposed to be. So Jesus fulfills this as the son of David. He fulfills what a son of David should be. He is the rightful king. When he dies, does he stay dead? No, he does not. In the resurrection, he establishes, reestablishes the house of David. Now here's what's interesting. That is one promise, right? That's the promise made to David. So now think of this. Jesus then is a king, a leader with no children. So what does God do? By the resurrection, there are now those who can, by quality, call themselves what? The sons of God, the sons and daughters of God. Talks about it in John, talks about it in Ephesians. We are the sons and the daughters of God. The reestablishment of the house of David, that sounds oddly like Abraham, doesn't it? one who could not have children, now has 
nations and nations worth of children. Yeah, that sounds pretty on point when you look at that. And what's more, as we see that even in, in this here, we, we see Adam represented, 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15 is such an amazing chapter just in general. This is, excuse me, this is Paul talking about this. Verse 45, thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust, the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are all those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is what James is getting at. Now if we turn back to Acts 15, in this next part, the remnant, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. This, word, this, is a, this is a tricky one. So Edom. The word Edom. Anyone know Hebrew? Okay, so no one can check me on this. Okay. Uh, the way Hebrew works is it, it works as a stem language. Anyone familiar? There are, there are key root words, and then vowels are added to it to give it some additional meaning. And so you have this, this word Edom. If you take those vowels and you replace them, you get the name Adam. It's the right root. What James does is he, he adds in those vowels there. When you get Adam, does anyone know what the name Adam means? It's man. It's the name for man. James takes that and he applies that and says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. What James is getting at is this was always part of the plan from the beginning. From the beginning, the plan was that the Lord would save the nations that was always the intended plan. Just went around a different direction. Do you know where this divide came from between the nations and the nation of Israel? If you go back, it starts to make some sense. It's talked about in Deuteronomy 32, which I know that at certain times we have talked about before. But it's pointed out here in Deuteronomy 32, verse 7, says, Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations, and ask your father, and he will show you your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What's being recounted here is the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, that's where the nations were divided. 
If you go back to Genesis 10, you get the table of nations. There are 70 nations there. Chapter 11, whole cloth humanity rejects God and instead tries to, well, build a name for themselves. There's probably other things going on. So then God goes down to look to see what's going on, sees this taking place. The nations are divided, right? And we, we, we know they're divided according to language. God does that according to tribes and people groups, family groups. Once that takes place, basically what Deuteronomy 32 is saying is that they were all divided up amongst the sons of God. God says this, fine, you don't want to worship me? I give you over to them. You worship the other gods. Fine. You do that. What happens in Genesis 12? God finds someone named Abram and says, hey, Abram, I'm going to make a new nation. That one's going to be mine. God makes a nation for himself. And he makes a promise that all the nations will be blessed because of that nation. And how do we know who came from that nation? That's, that's where we make that connection. Who, who came from Israel to bless all nations? It's a Sunday school answer. Ah, nailed it. It's Jesus. And so James is just taking these ideas and these concepts and he's applying it here. He's saying, how can we say that God wants to save the nations? And now we have that opportunity where God actually has done the work He's shown that he's reaching out to the nations through the speaking of tongues on Pentecost. That, that is this gathering of the, the nations again. And then we see God blessing the word going out to the Gentiles. So why would we get to this point and then say, oh, but never mind, now you have to be Jews? This doesn't make any kind of sense. This goes against that original and focused plan that God had. In fact, his plan was pretty big. You go to uh, to the law, you go to uh, Exodus 19, and God says to Israel, I'm going to make you a priest of, or a nation of priests to the nations. They were supposed to be a bridge between Yahweh and the nations, which they never really took up. There's really only one time where that seemed to be happening as a practice, and that was under the rule of Solomon where the nations were coming to seek wisdom and they were hearing of the Lord and the, the fame of Israel was going out all to the nations, you start to see some of those things taking place. And so now we finally are at a time where God has provided for not just his people a sacrifice, but as we see through some of these promises and how James focuses then on Amos to say this was always the plan for the Gentiles. And I love how James frames it here. He says, with this, the word of the prophet agrees. In verse 19, he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. Why are we putting up new barriers? It seems like this is the, the natural fulfillment of God, what God has. Why are we stopping it? Why are we slowing it down? Why are we adding burdens to this thing? Why, why are we doing that? Verse 20, we should write to them 
to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual morality, from what's been strangled, and from blood, which admittedly sounds weird. It's like, just remind them about the strangling thing, and then we're probably good, right? There's reasons, there's reasons for that we'll get into in just a second, but James's point is we shouldn't be adding new things. We shouldn't be adding additional barriers. And this really was the big deal. This was what really brought them all together to have this discussion. Verse 21. Now, this is interesting, verse 21. Because it seems like James is actually, <clears throat> I don't know how else to say it, he's throwing a bone to the Pharisees here. He's actually saying, the Pharisees, in their, in their, in their teachings and what they did, they, 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 it's not all bad. Look at verse 21. It says, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Saying that what the Pharisees did, because those were set up by, that, by the Pharisaical sect. They went and set up all these different synagogues all over the place. This was some of their practices to say that the, the, everything they're doing is not bad. It's not wrong. In fact, the nations have a representation of an understanding of Moses because of some of these different things. And so kind of based on that, I kind of think all of these statements James is making is probably a summation of all the debate and all the discussion. He's boiling it down into these points. And he found that passage in Amos that just perfectly summed it all up and pulled it together. That's pretty good for on the fly. Nice work, James. Probably did all from memory. I don't know if they even had copies of the scripture, so bravo. Look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose from among them and send them to, uh, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So pause there for a second. That, that just kind of did it. That, we're done, I guess. Ta-da. I mean, I, what hap- there's no like in between, like, okay, then we, did they, what did they do? There's no gavel, but it was just done. They're like, yeah, it's, it seemed good to, for all of us to, to do this thing. It, it's, it feels very anticlimactic, to be honest. This whole thing, they, they traveled, it probably took them weeks to get all these things together and have all these conversations and debates and all those things, and James just stands up and says, you know what, it says this thing in Amos, so I think we're, we're good, right? Like, that was it. Neat. We move on. What's interesting, we don't hear what the sect of the, of the circumcision, did they rebut? Did they, it doesn't seem like they did. If they did, Luke didn't care. <laughs> Luke didn't care to write it, so I don't, it seemed to maybe not even be a thing. We're just done. We're just done with the conversation. And what I think that really shows is the submission that they really had to God's word and to the teachings of Jesus. I think this shows we didn't have to have something crazy formalized. We just all kind of looked around and we agreed, yeah, this was right. And we just move on. It doesn't seem like there was any kind of, you know, the Pharisees didn't get in trouble, you know. We're just kind of, we're just kind of done, which is pretty, uh, pretty great, as far as I can see. And they agree. This is the other thing I like, I really like about this. 
they, they eventually get to the point where we're going to write a letter and send back. But they thought it so important for them to see how, how this all came about that, that this time they were, they were sending men to go and to be physical representatives of this. They, they gave a, a testimony from their own mouth of what took place. So it's not just the letter. You know that I don't think that anyone would accuse Paul and Barnabas of making something up, but no, you've got these men who were sent from the apostles, from the elders to go and to verbally affirm these things. And again, they send two. So again, two witnesses, which I think is fitting. And so then there's the letter here, which we'll get to in just a second. But I want to go back up to verse 20 and 21, where it talks about, remember to remind them of these things. And we get a weird list. Abstain from things polluted by idols. We don't know exactly what that is, maybe from our own experience. Sexual morality, what's been strangled, and from blood. What is all this? This is what I find so interesting about this passage. This might seem weird, it might seem off the wall, but it really, really is not. If you go back to Leviticus, chapter, starting in chapter 17, we get a long discussion in the law concerning these different matters. Chapters 17 through 20 have to do with pagan practices that they're supposed to abstain from and specific sexual immorality they're supposed to abstain from. I think it's important to note the issue that brought them all together for the Jerusalem Council was you have to be Jewish-like to be saved. That's wholeheartedly rejected and they say, but just remember to live like this. And where did they get these rules? Then you just make them up. They went to God's word. What was so interesting is they went to the law to figure out, well, what should we do in these cases? They deemed these to be the most applicable to the Gentiles in living a righteous life. Remember these things from the scriptures to abstain from these particular things. Now, these seem weird to us, maybe, as like a, oh yeah, and don't forget. All of this is connected, and I don't think we connect things this way, but if you read through the law, Yahweh definitely connects things like eating certain things, sexual practices, and worshiping of other deities, other gods, other spirits. All these things are connected. And in fact, in here you have, maybe it's specified according to practice, but essentially things polluted by idols. Paul brings that back up with meat offered to idols he talks about in Corinthians. Sexual morality is talked about multiple places in the New Testament as reminders. Strangled, things strangled and from blood, those are, I think, just connected with the uh, practices of different pagan rituals. They were, still, they were still accomplished throughout the Roman world. And so just as a reminder to abstain from these things, abstain from these practices, and so I, I, I think that a lot of the things offered to idols, uh, strangle from blood, we might think, oh, we don't have any of that kind of stuff. 
Uh, although just today, not today, this last week, going through um, some different stores, you might see, if depending on who owns the store, you might see in the corner a little idol set up. Have you seen this? You go into a different store or different, you might see a little idol, and you might some, see some, some things offered there. Have you seen that? Am I by myself? You guys need to go to different stores. Okay, good. You gotta go see this thing. Um, these, these practices are still around. And I think maybe we just like don't care anymore. But these things are still happening. They're still around. They're still practiced by others. So they're still, they're still here. The sexual immoral, immorality thing. Just to kind of sum it up. This, you know, we, we, there are people who could spend like a long time on this. I think it's pretty simple. Uh, so what's in the category of sexual morality? Anything that's not one man and one woman as exemplified in Genesis as a practice is sexually immoral. And if you want details on it, Leviticus 17 through 20 gives you details on it. It's gross. Some of them. Because you go like, ugh. Why would, you, why would you do that? Um, but the, what's interesting is in that passage, Yahweh points out, he says, all of the nations around you practice all of these things. Like he has to list them all out because if he doesn't list them all out, they might go, oh, so it's okay if I also take my niece as my wife? And like, no, no, it's not okay. Like all of these have different practices and different things that are attached to them in these different nations around them and God makes a long list of these different things that you should not do. But we can make it easier to just say we have a good example, follow the good example. Pretty much it. Now whenever we talk about this, I do wanna bring up this example because it's fitting and it helps us I think understand some of the thoughts behind how these things are carried out, and that has to do with divorce. There were very specific rules around divorce, which confuses some people, because they say, doesn't it also say that God hates divorce? Have you, seen, have you heard this argument from people? God hates divorce, but he has rules around divorce. This doesn't make sense to me. Jesus shed some light on this by saying, divorce wasn't developed because God likes it. It was developed because of your sin. Like, it's developed because Sin happens. Sin is accomplished. So how do you live righteously in and amongst it? So when there is immorality, how do you deal with it? Here are some rules so you can actually live and navigate around it. There's a spouse who is sexually immoral. Well, okay, then there are rules that allow you to have a certificate of divorce, to, to, to be able to continue to live righteously in light of unrighteousness if that makes sense. The way the law is written, it's to allow us to understand what God's standards are and to help us navigate how in the world we're supposed to continue to live our life. Because guess what? We don't all live properly, if you haven't figured that out. Not just in the church, but outside the church. People, people do bad things. People do wrong things. People do things that are immoral. And so God allows us to understand how these things work so that we can continue to live We can continue to live lives in light of these things. So in light of sin taking place, how do we navigate this? How do we do this thing? God has given us some of these rules. 
But if God gives us some of these rules, then it's kind of hard to get around them. So. And, and if you have, like, if you, if you deeply disagree with me on some of these things, you can send, send those. You can email those to John at Refuge CF. There you go. J, yeah, J-O, J-O-N. I'm joking, of course. Except about the email. Um, and so we've already had the letter from the apostles read. So I don't feel like we have to go all the way through this, but there are a couple of things I did want to point out. And it mostly has to do with how this letter is written and, and, and handled. And so as it's written and sent, it's sent to those specific places. If you look back, this going back to Antioch and to a couple of other regions. Maybe there were regions where Paul had stopped and talked very specifically. Verse 25, it seemed good to us having come to one accord. They all came to this agreement, and they came to this agreement, again, because of their submission to God's word. And honestly, this is, this is due, I think, to, in, to the leadership of the apostles and the elders. That we came to this agreement. Uh, verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. There is nothing extra that needs to be accomplished in order for one to be saved. That's really the most important outcome from this Jerusalem Council. No, there is no additional barrier for anyone to come to the Lord. So then there's some additional things they sent off and they went to Antioch and all those different things. I just want to drop down some, some observations. Um, how, much time, how much more time do we have? The clock went out back there. A few more minutes? Perfect. I'm over already, huh? Okay. Sorry. Well, I mean, look, I can't, I can't tell anymore. It's gone. So to my, to my credit. Um, just a few things, just a list of things. Number one, Peter's not the Pope. Peter was the Pope. He would have just said it. He didn't have to go through this whole thing. Just saying. People say Peter's the Pope. Doesn't seem like the Pope. Doesn't act like the Pope. Um, there was an appeal to the elders, just like in a family. This seems to be set up like, more like a family than a corporation. The apostles do not rule the church. The apostles gave uh, some debate points. They talked about it, and it's James who stood up, discussed it, not the apostles. There's no democracy here. There's no voting. There's no delegates. There's none of those things. You can have discussions about democracy, but there's no democracy here. Just, I'm just saying. There was debate and deliberate conversation and there was an appeal to scripture, which I think is important to point out again. Uh, James offers the exegetical points as part of his summation and his conclusion, which I think is important to point out. And there seems to be a submission by everyone to the findings. Uh, and then the findings and the agreement was shared with, with everyone and sort of the last thing, no one cares what the Romans think. There's not one mention here that, well, what will everyone else think? Nobody cares. Nobody cares what anyone else thinks. This has to do with salvation. This has to do with the church. No one cares. Boop. 
So to sum it up all together, there's, there's no additional requirements in order for someone to respond to the call of the Father and the drawing of the Spirit. God's word is to be used to guide our actions and our morality. I think if we can get around that, we can understand how God wants to lead his church. Father God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how you display to us your standards. Thank you for faithful men and women who accomplished these things in the, in the early years of the church in this first generation, Lord, to give examples to us on how we should make decisions as a family, how we should move forward when we have disagreements. Thank you for uh, Luke who recorded all of this to allow us to know and to understand these different things. Lord God, we are excited to be your people. I pray, Lord, that we would not add any barrier to anyone else that we add any requirement to salvation, that we would lift any kind of barrier to anyone who might seek after you, but instead offer it freely. Lord, as the gospel is freely given to us, I pray that we would freely give it to others, that there would be nothing that would stand in the way of someone who is seeking after you. And Father, I pray you make us faithful, faithful people who talk through disagreements in light of your word that we might come to a conclusion together. Lord, that we might move forward and recognize what is the true focus, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the salvation of those who are in the nations, Lord, that we might all be one family, Lord, as we await our blessed hope, your return. Lord, we pray you would return quickly. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.